You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with the fall guy. Let's do it later. Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes. Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Because nope. I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. Today, all, you are listening to the 50 Years Ago in Hockey Podcast. I'm your host, Rick Cole, and every week we take you on a journey down memory lane, 50 years back in time, to the sporting world of 1970. We come to you from the beautiful Niagara region of Ontario, Canada, each week, and this week we're covering the week of May 4th to May 10th, 1970, and what's significant about this week it's the final week of the 1969-70 hockey season except for maybe a couple of games in the minor leagues after that and it's been quite a journey this year our podcast each week is made possible by the support of our two sponsors newspapers.com is the world's largest online newspaper archive and their support's been crucial to our research as they enable us to access all the news from hockey land in 1970s we're also sponsored by the breakwall brewing company which is located in beautiful downtown Port Coburn, Ontario. Now, in these particular times, the break wall isn't open for meals in the traditional sense, but they're still brewing beer and they're still providing takeout for the folks in Port Coburn. When things get back to normal, I'd love to meet everybody who listens to this thing at the break wall in Port Coburn. In last week's show, if you happen to miss it, we talked about the Blues eliminating the Pittsburgh Penguins in six games in the Western Final. And we had all the details of the first game of the 1970 Stanley Cup Final between the Bruins and the Blues, where the results were, of course, quite expected. We also talked about a hot rumor going around the hockey world during the Stanley Cup playoffs that suggested that by next fall, superstar the Golden Jet Bobby Hull could leave the Chicago Blackhawks and become a member of the Toronto Maple Leafs. And we discussed some of the scenarios by which that could happen and also some of the news from other cities when they learned that the Blackhawks were considering dealing Hull or Stan Makita, their other big superstar. This week, the last week of the NHL 1969-70 season, we'll talk about the Bruins winning the Stanley Cup as they eliminate the Blues in four straight. There's no drama there, no spoiler. Everybody who's ever followed hockey knows what happened. We'll talk a little bit about the strategies that each team uh, said that they would employ as the series went on. And we have a very interesting look at Blues goalie Jacques Plante, who, if you remember from last week's show, was knocked out cold by a Freddie Stanfield shot in the first game of the final series. He spoke to reporters from his hospital room in St. Louis, talked about his future, about the masks, and about life in general. Of course, we have all the rest of the hockey news from this historic week 50 years ago, so let's get to it. The week began with the Bruins leading the Stanley Cup final, one game to none, after that convincing victory on Sunday afternoon where we had the highlights from last week. On Monday, both coaches, Scotty Bowman of the Blues and the Bruins' Harry Sinden, were asked and discussed their strategy for the upcoming games. Bowman said that he would have rookie goalie Ernie Wakely, who took over for Jacques Plant in Game 1 when Plant was hurt. They said he would use Ernie in Game 2 at home in St. Louis. This was despite the fact that Wakely had been lit up by that potent Boston offense after he took over for Plant in Game 1. Plant, by the way, 
is not going to be back in this series by the looks of it. His injury has been confirmed as a concussion, but thank goodness there was no fracture of the skull, and that was the initial concern. Scotty said that no matter what the outcome in Game 2 of the series, when, when they moved back to Boston for Games 3 and 4, Glenn Hall would be between the pipes for the Blues. Another injury that wasn't reported but happened in Game 1 was to the Blues fine defenseman Barkley Plager, one of those three tough Plager brothers. Bark passed out on the St. Louis bench in the third period, was quickly revived but had to be taken to hospital. No one seemed to notice that at the time. Uh, Bart spent the night, Barkley I should say, spent the night in the St. Louis hospital and was released the next Monday, but during his time there, x-rays were taken and it was shown that he had a rib separation. Now I've heard of broken ribs, I've heard of bruised ribs, but I've never heard of separated ribs, although I've done that a few times on the barbecue. Well, Barkley Plager said that the doctor who treated him told him at the hospital that he had never seen anything quite like this rib injury that Plager had sustained and he told Barkley that when he was all done he was going to write a paper on it. Now Plager sustained this injury in the second period of the game, that game number one, when he attempted to hip check the Bruins' Johnny McKenzie who's about as solid a player as there is on that Boston team. Well, Barkley Plager bounced off Johnny McKenzie and into the boards and somehow on the very top of the dasher, he caught his ribs on the corner and that caused the separation. Coach Scotty Bowman said that after reviewing his team's performance in that disastrous first game, that he planned on continuing his strategy of having Jimmy Roberts shadow the Bruins' great defenseman Bobby Orr. In game one, he also had assigned Timmy Ecclestone and Terry Crisp, a couple of very industrious forwards, to share the oar shadowing duty. Bowman showed reporters videotapes of how his strategy was carried out in game one, and he explained that his players didn't execute what he wanted done well enough, and that if they did, as he described the tasks that they were supposed to do, if they did it properly, then the Blues had a chance to be successful. Scotty made an admission of sorts to Jack Chevalier, the fine hockey writer of the Philadelphia Inquirer. He quoted Scotty Bowman as saying, the West Division just does not have the scores. Our forwards are just as good as the East defensively, but that's all. Scotty went on to say that we should all remember that the players that the expansion teams from 1967 have today were all just substitutes over in the East just a couple of years ago. To that I would say, towel thrown in by Scotty Bowman. Scotty knows it's over and he's not mincing words. Bruins coach Harry Sinden, on the other hand, he said that uh, quite simply... He wasn't planning any lineup changes for his team or switching in any of his strategy against the Blues. And really, why would he? Boston completely outclassed St. Louis in that first game. And based on the result, what should be taking place after game one is a discussion among the National Hockey League Board of Governors as to whether a mercy rule should be adopted by the league for these Stanley Cup playoffs. It doesn't matter where you go around the NHL, writers, team executives, coaches, fans, everybody is talking about the Stanley Cup playoffs of 1970 in less than favorable terms. Penguins general manager Jack Riley, whose team was eliminated by the Blues last week, is saying that the St. Louis club with their poor showing so far just after one game, is making the West Division look bad. Well, they're not 
making it look any worse than it actually is. The Blues are the best of a bad lot in the West. Veteran hockey writer Dink Carroll of the Montreal Gazette, who's now semi-retired, he's a man who has seen more playoff than most humans on the planet. He says that this year's Stanley Cup playoffs are going to go down in history as among the least memorable. They haven't been closely contested and these playoffs haven't produced particularly good hockey and the usual Stanley Cup excitement is quite simply missing from this year's tournament. Of course in Boston there's a lot of excitement and the fans in the Boston Garden are their usual classless selves but that's to be expected. They do love their Bruins. They do hate everybody else. But even in St. Louis, the crowds, while they've been strong, they're not sellouts. Even the rabid Blues fans seem to know what the inevitable future holds for their team. We'll see what the reaction is when they get to Game 2. And Game 2 was on Tuesday evening. And Tuesday evening came. And Tuesday evening went. And there were no surprises. The Bruins blasted the Blues once again, this time to the tune of 6-2. So the Blues were twice as good as they were in Game 1 because they scored two goals, but the Bruins scored six. So the Bruins had a two-games-to-none lead in the final. But most stories written about this game suggested that the 6-2 margin was mostly flattering to the Blues. It could have been much much worse Boston led this game four to one after 40 minutes of play out shooting the Blues in the process by a count of 27 to 11 over those first two periods the Bruins took their foot off the pedal after that but it was apparent to those in attendance and like myself watching at home on TV that if the Bruins had wanted to score 15 they most likely could have A couple of lesser scoring lights led the way for Boston in this game with Eddie Westfall and Derek Sanderson each potting a pair of markers for the Bruins. Freddie Stanfield and John Busick had the other goals for the winners while Terry Gray and Frank St. Marseille managed to find the range for the Blues but their goals came long after the issue was no longer in doubt. All the talk after the game was whether the Bruins can win the series in four straight, and there weren't many who disagreed with the prevalent opinion on that, which was, of course they can. Boston's Eddie Westfall offered this take on the situation. Whether we win in the minimum of four depends on us. we played a 100 games now, and we can taste the championship. Eddie said, the Bruins just can't throw their uniforms out on the ice and expect to win. They have to come back and play against the Blues. He thought the Blues could come back like they did against Montreal last year. Against Montreal last year, the Blues lost in four straight as well. Well, if you're wondering how Blues coach Scotty Bowman reacted, after the game, Scotty was the only word to describe him, downtrodden. He had not much to say and in fact his quote was this I would say they were about twice as good as us tonight as usual Scotty Bowman was correct in his assessment of a hockey game there were some interesting things that did take place in game two a couple of Stanley Cup playoff scoring records were established Phil Esposito set the playoff scoring record with 23 points by garnering two assists in the game. Bobby Orr also had two assists in the contest. That gives him 18 playoff points this year, two more than the record for NHL defensemen in the Stanley Cup playoffs. That record was held by Tim Horton of the Toronto Maple Leafs, who established the mark when the Leafs won their first Stanley Cup in 11 years in 1962. Now, as if losing this game isn't bad enough, there was a story going around after Game 2 that Glenn Hall, the Blues veteran goaltender, and easily the best of the remaining ones with Jacques Plante gone, he slated to start Game 3 in Boston, but Glenn apparently has an infected hand and he might not be able to suit up. 
That'll leave poor Ernie Wakely as the only solution in goal for the Blues, and he's proven that he's not quite up to stopping that blasting Boston offense. Although really, I don't think Glenn Hall will have a lot more luck than Ernie, but he'll probably look a little more uh, professional in doing it. Glenn Hall is one of the best of all time. Growing center Derek Sanderson always has a way of stirring the pot, and he did it again after this game. Derek angered a few of the Blues players and all of their fans when he was asked to give an assessment of this Blues team. Derek said they got no team at all. One hockey player, one, is all they got. Derek named Red Berenson and said that Berenson comes at you and he works hard and he's a real class guy. You don't hear anything about him though since Phil Goyette got here, said Derek. Derek went on to finish his quote by saying, Red Berenson is the only hockey player on that St. Louis team. So the off day between games two and three offered little insight on the series. The only revelation that made any sort of news was that St. Louis coach Scotty Bowman acknowledged that he would abandon his his ploy to shadow Bobby Orr. Bowman basically said that the Bruins are going to win the series in four straight, but if they play worse and we play better, we can make it close. I guess that means they'll lose games by one or two goals rather than by three, four, or five. The other topic of conversation was a question of who would be named the most valuable player of the Stanley Cup playoffs and thus be awarded the Conn Smythe Trophy. Everyone agreed it would have to be one of Phil Esposito or Bobby Orr, although Jerry Cheever's name come up and so did that of Johnny McKenzie, who scored some pretty important goals for the Bruins. The guess was that Orr and Esposito were pretty much in a dead heat as far as the voters would be concerned at this point in the series after two games. Now, if one of them were maybe able to score an overtime Stanley Cup winning goal, maybe that might make the difference. Well, on Thursday evening, the Brews did get a tad closer to the Bruins, but they lost once again in Boston. This time, the margin was only three goals as the Bruins skated off Boston Garden Ice with another win, this time 4-1. to one. The Blues, surprisingly, actually held the lead in this game as Frank St. Marseille scored their only goal of the contest at 6.22 of the opening frame. The Bruins tied it up just seven minutes later as Johnny Busick scored and Johnny McKenzie, who, as we mentioned, always seems to score big goals, he netted what proved to be the game winner just five minutes after Busick's tally. After a scoreless middle frame, Wayne Cashman added a pair of goals in the third period to make the final score, as we mentioned, 4-1. to one. It was another dominating performance by Boston, outshooting the Blues by 46 to 21. All anyone could talk about after the game was a display of goalkeeping put on by Glenn Hall. He put aside any discomfort that he was feeling from that injured hand, and he was more than just very good for St. Louis. He was often spectacular and in no way could be held responsible for the loss his team suffered. Scotty Bowman praised the valiant effort put forth by the man they call Mr. Goalie. Scotty said, I've never seen Hall look any better. He made some saves that were unbelievable. And on the goals that Boston scored on him, on Cashman's goal, it was the fourth rebound that got by him. Bowman also conceded that Ab McDonald and Phil Goyette, two of the regular season stars for the Blues, 
they're not producing in these playoffs. Scotty said, I'm not getting anything out of them. He went on to say that it's the long season that's affecting these two veteran players, both on the long side of 35 years old. Scotty said he tried resting Phil Goyette in the last weeks of the schedule, and he did give him a lighter load. It was quite obvious, but he said, Phil just can't go right now. There really isn't much else to say about Game 3. All the reaction was exactly what one would expect. There's no contest to be had here. And at this point, all those involved seem to be just looking forward to a merciful end to this season on Sunday. You can count on the Blues to show up and give it a good go. Scotty Bowman will have them as ready as any team of the Blues caliber could possibly be. But the Bruins would love to win this thing on their home ice. And they're going to get the opportunity to do that on Sunday. And this is not an opportunity that the Bruins will let slip by. It just remains to be seen whether the game can even be competitive with the Blues knowing what the, their fate is actually going to be. So the teams had a couple of days off, Friday and Saturday, before Sunday afternoon scheduled Game 4 at Boston Garden. The biggest news made during those off days was not about the series, but it did involve one of the stars of this final. Bobby Orr scored a previously unheard of triple play in the NHL awards. He was named the winner of the Hart Trophy as the National Hockey League Most Valuable Player. He was also awarded the Norris Trophy as the National Hockey League's Best Defenseman, Top Rear Guard, and they are added to his already confirmed Art Ross Trophy, the other major award which is given to the league's leading scorer. Bobby's reaction to acquiring all the hardware was typical. It's nice, but the big prize is all he's thinking of right now, and that is the Stanley Cup. So Sunday came along and everybody was ready for Game 4. I'd like to add a lot of drama to this, but I really can't. Everyone knows what happened. The result was never in doubt. It was a closer game. It went to overtime. And all you really know about the game, or really need to know about the game, comes in this sound clip right here. Play underway. The first team to score wins the game. Here's Picard. Out to Tim Ecclestone. Back to his own line to Jean-Guy Talbot. Talbot out to Keenan. He missed it. And Bobby Orr flipped it out at center to Sanderson. Sanderson shooting it into the St. Louis zone. Racing in is Carlton for the Bruins. Centered it up close in front, and Talbot cleared it. Here's Don Ory, a shot. That's blocked by Talbot. Now Sanderson a drive, and that one whistled wide. Ory for the Bruins, tied up by Ecclestone and Berenson. Westfall rolled it in front. Sanderson tried a shot that was wide, and Keenan cleared it, but not out. Bobby Orr behind the net to Sanderson. To Orr! Bobby Orr! I still think that's one of the great calls in any uh, winning play of all professional sports. Ranks right up there with Tom Cheats, touch them all, Joe, when Joe Carter hit his World Series home run winning run for the uh, Toronto Blue Jays. So the Bruins win the Stanley Cup for the first time in 29 years, and they were most worthy champions indeed. It was a more even contest than the first three games had been, with the shots on goal reflecting that each team had 32 shots at the other team's goalkeeper. Rick Smith, a young defenseman, opened the scoring in this game for Boston at 528 of the first period, but Red Berenson, living up to Derek Sanderson's assessment as the Blues' best player, brought the Blues even in the final minute of the first period. 
St. Louis actually jumped in front at the 3.22 minute mark of the second period with Gary Sabrin scoring the goal. But 11 minutes later, Boston evened the score again with Phil Esposito scoring his 13th goal of the playoffs. In the third period, the Blues came out flying and Larry Keenan once again scored a key Blues goal as he beat Boston goalie Jerry Cheevers after only 19 seconds of play and there were more than a few patrons of Boston Garden who may have had a few doubts about this one at that point in the game. Those doubts though were basically erased in the 14th minute of the final frame by Boston captain John Busick who tied the score. That set the stage for Orr's dramatics. The Bruins could smell victory, no doubt about that, but it was Glenn Hall again who was not about to yield the collective will of the Bostons that easily. He stopped shot after shot, and the game ended up moving to overtime, where Bobby Orr ended it quickly with one of the most iconic goals in hockey history after just 40 seconds of extra time. Now we've heard that wonderful call by Dan Kelly time and time again. Most of us almost know it off by heart. But hockey fans outside of Boston might not be familiar with this version of the goal as described by the Bruins' own play-by-play voice, Fred Cusick. Orr fights to keep it in, does, has it in the corner to Sanderson, back in front to Orr, shot, scores! Bobby Orr from Sanderson! And what could be better than that? As they beat St. Louis, 4-3! Orr to Sanderson, back to Orr, and they go wild! And Orr fell down in the corner and they have surrounded them! What a scene, John! A story I hadn't heard about that overtime before doing all the research into this game was that Phil Esposito actually predicted the sudden end of the game. As they were waiting for the first overtime period to begin, and as would turn out a short overtime session, Esposito sat next to linemate Ken Hodge on the Bruins bench just before the faceoff. He leaned over to Hodge and he said, we're not even going to get on the ice. Or, or Sandy, meaning Derek Sanderson, is going to end it quick. And end it quick they did. It was a tumultuous scene on the ice. The Bruins mobbed Or. They buried him in the corner. They celebrated with each other. They were uh, hugging and basically dancing with each other before the Blues lined up and the teams then had the uh, obligatory handshake line. After that, the Stanley Cup was brought out and was awarded to Bruins captain Johnny Busick by National Hockey League President Clarence Campbell. And then an interesting thing happened. With the ice being littered with streamers, programs, and various other bits of debris, Busick lifted the cup aloft over his head and skated around the rink, risking a fall and damaging the storied trophy. Now, but Johnny was asked afterwards why he did that, why he took the chance of lifting the Stanley Cup up over his head and skating around the right, the rink. And the chief said to the interviewer that he wanted all of Boston fans in the garden to get a good look at the Stanley Cup, which would now be residing in Boston. The scene in the Boston dressing room shortly afterwards was one of basically chaos, according to the reporters who were in there, and there wasn't a dry eye in the house. But that was only because of all the beer and champagne flying around the room. Boston team president Weston Adams Jr. lost his shirt on this game, however, but that wasn't losing his shirt through a bet. He also lost a jacket, a tie, and very nearly his trousers when he was mobbed by the players and given an impromptu shower. The next day, with everybody pretty well hungover, the coup de grace was added with the announcement that Bobby Orr 
was the winner of the Conn Smythe Trophy as the Stanley Cup Playoff Most Valuable Player. This caps off what was a dream season for the young superstar, his fourth major award, and we're not going to see many people do that in the very near future, I would think. And with that, the 1969 National Hockey League season has come to an end. A bit anticlimactic, but nonetheless, an iconic moment that will live on for many, many years. Aside from the uh, final series, there was a lot of other news around the NHL during the week and also during the rest of the hockey world. And that would make for, uh, it's shaping up to be a very interesting offseason. Of course, we're counting on that here at 50 Years Ago in Hockey. We're going to need some new contact each week. We're going to try and keep this going right through the summer. Missing from these uh, final games was Jacques Plan of the Blues, as we mentioned, injured in Game 1. And he ended up spending a few days in a St. Louis hospital. He was knocked out, if you remember, by that Fred Stanfield slap shot in game one. The hospital room there where Jacques was residing must have looked on some occasions like Grand Central Station this week, as uh, the number of interviews in which he gave out would indicate that he had uh, visitors coming and going all hours of the day of night. Uh, Jacques, ever accommodating to the writers, provided a great deal of interesting information to everybody who wanted to listen. In almost every interview that he did, Jacques was quick to mention that the mask he was wearing saved his life. It at least saved him from very serious injury, but there's more to Jacques than that first meets the eye, and he's got a reason for saying that the mask saved his life. Jacques, you see, has been in the goalie mask business ever since 1959 when he first wore a, a, a mask in an NHL game in November after being hit by an Andy Bathgate shot. So when Jacques uh, proclaims to everyone who will listen that the mask saved his life, he's also promoting his product. And from what we've been hearing, He's working on a new space age material model, which might prove to be lighter, tougher, and safer than anything we've yet seen worn by goalies in professional or amateur hockey. Joe Falls of the Detroit Free Press, he's more of a baseball guy than a, than a hockey guy, but he loves his Red Wings. He made the trip to St. Louis to speak to Plant. And uh, here's what Joe reported that Plant had to say about the shot from Freddie Stanfield. He said, my head, it is still blowing up now. I've been hit before, but never like this. I see him wind up, but that's all I see. The mask, it saved my life, Jacques said. I've had many things, four broken noses, two broken cheekbones, one broken jaw, and Stan Makita. He hit me with a shot last year, which grazed the side of my head and caused me to have 15 stitches. But nothing ever felt like this. My head, it is still spinning. I feel like I'm floating. I feel like I want to throw up all the time. Jacques went on to tell that group, that he would play again in the NHL if some team wants him, but he expects to uh, be let go by the Blues once the playoffs are over. Jock, always the confident one, proclaimed to reporters that right now he's a better goalkeeper than he has ever been in his career. Ed Wilkes of the St. Louis Post-Dispatch was on hand, and he asked Jock what this particular goalie mask was uh, made of uh, the one that he was wearing when he was injured the mask was cracked by the shot but really didn't come apart as many thought it could have Jacques says that this model was not plastic it was made of graphite of all things and had been constructed for him by a firm in Texas using his specifications. He said that the mask had been tested to withstand the blow of up to 125 miles an hour and yet it was cracked by the shot by Stanfield which on the way to the net has been deflected 
by Phil Esposito's stick. Jacques continued his conversation with uh, sports reporter Wilkes. Wilkes is not a hockey guy. That job belongs to Wally Cross with the St. Louis Post-Dispatch. But Ed is a great writer, and Jacques uh, could tell that Ed is not somebody who usually interviews him. So he wanted to explain to Mr. Wilkes just what goaltending is all about. Jacques described his job this way. He said you must be born to be a goalkeeper, a man alone. Even the rule book says you're not a hockey player. A team is made up of so many hockey players and a goaltender. You are a man who can prevent defeat, but you cannot win the game. And now we bring you another episode of the National Hockey League soap opera, As the Seals Turn. The Oakland Seals are in the news again, and again it isn't for anything good. Ellis Woody Erdman, who is the president of the Transnational Communications Corporation, who own the Oakland Seals, says that reports that the franchise is in dire financial straits simply are not true. Erdman says the Seals will remain in Oakland and are entirely capable of making ends meet financially and even turning a handsome profit. However, a little later in the week it became clear that the franchise was about to change hands again with two local sports owners, if you want to call them sports I guess, battling to take control of the Seals. They were Jerry Seltzer, who owns the Professional Roller Derby League, and Charles O. Finley, the controversial proprietor of baseball's Oakland Seals. Both men vowed that they would keep the team in the Bay Area. Uh, The lawsuit we told you about last week will be the determining factor as to which of these men will be successful in acquiring the NHL team. At least those are the reports this week. But we're sure by the time next week rolls around, we'll have a whole new set of circumstances to talk about with the Seals. Brian Conacher, former Toronto Maple Leaf forward, is going to become the sports director of television station CKLW in Windsor this summer. That station is owned by Johnny Bassett. Brian has been working since the first of the year, learning the ropes at TV station CFTO Channel 9 in Toronto. We have some news about one of the new NHL franchises, the Vancouver Canucks. They ended their history in the Western Hockey League as winners of the Lester Patrick Cup. Awarded to the league's playoff champions, they won the series against the Portland Buckaroos in five games. Now, after the Canucks won their championship, a rather large party was to be given to celebrate the win by the Canucks general manager, Bud Poyle, who, as most people know, would run the National Hockey League club next September. Seemed a great number of the folks who attended the party left early and no one could figure out why. Well, we found out that it seemed like uh, former Canucks general manager coach Joe Crozier, who was fired by the team when Poyle was hired to take over, Joe was holding his own party, competing with the Poyle party at the very same time, of course, in a different location. Crozier, by the way, is dickering with the owners of the Western Hockey League, Seattle Totems, to purchase that team. His partner in that venture would be Canucks and WHL MVP this season, Andy Bathgate. Another little bit of news about Joe Crozier. He's suing the Canucks. For $35,000, that's the amount Joe says he's owed by the Canucks after he was fired, although the Canucks said they fired him with cause and don't believe they owe him any money. For much of this past National Hockey League season, there were constant whispers that Maple Leaf captain Dave Keon and rookie coach John McClellan were constantly at odds and at worst, possibly having an ongoing feud. Dave was asked this week about the rumors and he himself wondered how such a story could have started. Uh, No one had actually asked him about this until now and he said 
there was no problem between him and Coach McClellan. Now, as it turns out, as it usually does, the rumor came from someone, a sports writer, who jumped to conclusion over something that happened years before in Tulsa of the Central League with Dave's younger brother, Jimmy. Dave said that the issue in Tulsa concerning his younger brother, Jim, had nothing to do with Coach McClellan. Chalk this one up to another rumor of a sports writer putting two and two together and coming up with 33. Canadians general manager Sammy Pollock says that one of the big problems with the Habs this season in missing the playoffs was the attitude of some of their players and those attitudes must change before next season. Pollock said that many of the players were too matter of fact about losing and some of these guys will be in for a big shock this summer. It'll be interesting to see just who Sam is referring to. He didn't name names with those comments, but you can bet if you watch the guys that leave the Habs this summer, you'll know exactly who Sammy Pollock was talking about. We have some Red Wings news. Gordy Howe, the greatest of them all up to this point in history, is set to go uh, under the knife for surgery on his left wrist in just a few short days. The operation is going to be done to correct some ongoing problems that Gordy's been having since he broke the joint a couple of years ago. An enterprising sports writer, taking note that Gordy's sons Mark and Marty are uh, fine young hockey players, 16 and 14 years old respectively, uh, the writer asked Gordy if he would hang around the NHL long enough to play with his sons. And Gordy said, I think they'll both make the NHL, but I don't think I'll still be playing. That's too long. Gordy pushed the subject onto his wife, Colleen, who was present in the uh, during the interview. Uh, he said that Colleen knows more about the boys' hockey. Colleen said, it'd be terrific he could, if he could play with the boys. A long time ago, we used to joke about Gord playing hockey with Marty, but Gord would have to play at least three more years, and there's almost no chance of that. Also with the Red Wings, they have announced a price increase for all the seats at the Olympia next year. It's a $1 raise for every seat right across the board. And by the way, the Red Wings' new coach, Ned Harkness, his replacement at Cornell University as hockey coach next year is another Canadian, a fellow by the name of Dick Bertrand. Now, Dick was once a Toronto police officer and decided to go back to school. He's now 28 years old, and he will graduate from Cornell on June 9th with a Bachelor's of Science degree. Minnesota North Stars are another team that are upping their ticket prices for next season. Uh, single tickets are going to run from $3 to a top of $6.50. And the North Stars are hoping to add to their bank account by moving the press box, suspending it from the ceiling, and adding more seats where the press box is presently located. Now, here's an interesting news bit, and I'll be looking forward to this this coming fall, uh, the Manitoba Centennial Corporation says that six National Hockey League teams have agreed to take part in a Centennial Hockey Series in Winnipeg during the last week of September coming up this fall. The six teams are Montreal, Toronto, Vancouver, Minnesota, Chicago, and St. Louis. Now, there's no word yet on the format of this tournament how much the teams will be played or even if there might be international teams involved but I'd say there's no chance of that this will be an interesting concept something that might catch on in future uh, preseason tournaments uh, for the National Hockey League and one other news bit from the uh, Stanley Cup playoffs after the Blues were uh, losing uh, there was talk immediately afterwards that Scotty Bowman is going to kick himself upstairs, concentrate on simply the general manager's job, and he'll name a coach to take his place behind the bench. Now there have been the typical rumors that Al Arbor is the guy who's going to do it, 
but the Montreal Gazette suggests that former Great Habs player Dickie Moore, who ended his National Hockey League career with the Blues and became friends with Bowman, will be the man to take over behind the bench when Scotty becomes a full-time general manager. Our last item this week uh, comes from the Sporting News and their writer Stan Fischler in his column this week uh, had a few things to say at the end of the season. But here's one that uh, I really like. Stan has come around. If you've been following Stan, you know that he kind of minimizes what Bobby Orr can do. And he now says that Bobby Orr is simply the best hockey player ever. That's quite a turnaround for Stan. And he admits in his column this week that he regularly tried to minimize Orr's talents. But he didn't do this to be controversial or to draw attention to himself. Stan's only reason for putting Bobby down the way he did was to drown out all the superlatives and accolades that were routinely emanating from the Boston writers who, as you know, heaped praise on Orr. I guess that's what happens when a player goes on national TV, plays the series of his life, and basically proves everything you've written about him to be hogwash. But then again, I don't think there are too many that really took Stan Fischler all that seriously when he wrote about Bobby anyway. Now, Stan, it's time to get behind helmets for skaters and masks for goalie, isn't it? The photo that accompanies this week's podcast is one that countless hockey fans have seen over the years, and a good many of us have managed to snag one that has Bobby's autograph on it. But not a lot of fans really know the unusual story behind that picture. Talk about serendipity for the photographer who snapped that iconic photo, a fellow by the name of Ray Lucier. During the Boston-St. Louis series of 1970, photographers were assigned stools located at corresponding cubby holes cut in the protective plexiglass around the rink to afford an unobstructed camera view. Ray had been assigned to a spot in the corner in the east end of the Boston Garden and had for the entire game been shooting the action from that location. However, when the game went into overtime, Ray correctly figured that the Bruins wouldn't allow this thing to last more than one extra period, so he sought out a spot in the west end of the garden between periods. As luck would have it, Ray found an empty stool vacated by a photographer from a competing Boston newspaper. Ray was with the Boston Record American at the time. Unfortunately, I don't have their archives yet, but I'd love to get access to that. Now, the other photographer had gone to a nearby beer counter to quaff a couple in the excruciating heat that was going on in Boston Garden before the period was set to begin. It looked like he had a couple too many as he was still there when the opening face-off took place. Ray watched the spot in between periods and whenever whoever had been in that location wasn't in position at the start of the overtime, he slipped into that spot right then and there. He later said he didn't know who was assigned to that little cubby hole, but he would have gladly vacated it had the rightful owner returned. As it turned out, it only took 40 seconds of overtime for Bobby Orr to make history and for Ray Lussier to snap one of the most iconic hockey photographs of all time. Here's how much that photograph meant to Bobby Orr. 20 years later in 1990, Bobby decided to host a reunion of that very close Bruins Stanley Cup winner. When composing a list of hockey writers of the day back in 1970 whom they should invite to the event, Bobby was asked for his input and the first name he came up with was Ray Lucier. Turns out Bobby Orr loves that photo as much as the rest of us do. And if you visit the new arena in Boston, you'll see the Bobby Orr statue outside. And that statue is based entirely on this photograph. That's a story of the most iconic photograph in hockey history, Bobby Orr's game-winning goal in the 1970 Stanley Cup playoffs. So, boys and girls, that is a wrap for the National Hockey League's 
1969-70 season. With all that, the season has come to a merciful and we believe quite fitting end. We have a little more hockey to cover with the Memorial Cup and the AHL Calder Cup to be determined in the upcoming week and we'll also report on the typical off-season news that will be generated as we work up to the expansion and amateur drafts to be held in Montreal when Buffalo and Vancouver are formally admitted to the NHL. So what did we learn from this week's show? Well, the quick and merciful end of the Stanley Cup playoffs took place with an outcome that contained so few surprises, but a finish that became one of hockey's most iconic moments. We learned about Jacques Plante and how he feels about his career, and we learned some details on that shot that nearly killed him. And we had more news on that Oakland Seals situation. Now, as time goes on this summer, we'll also have some other content for the podcast. We've been doing some interviews over the winter with uh, lots of very interesting hockey people, and we'll present a few of those. And we're working on some other content that we had planned before everything became locked down. And if we can uh, accomplish that, we'll have that for you as well. We would like to thank each and every one of you for following along all season. We're gratified at the numbers of people who think there's some value in this project and we plan on keeping on keeping on right through next season. While we're not sure if we're going to have a Stanley Cup winner for the 2020 season or we're not even sure if we're going to have a 2021 season, we know what a great year 1970-71 was and we'll be there each week to give you all the details and also every day on Twitter. Our 50 Years Ago in Hockey podcast is produced by Andy Cole. Can't thank him enough for everything he does. Uh, the Rural Alberta Advantage, they're an indie rock group from Toronto, provides our intro and uh, exit music for the show. And they put on a great show if you ever get a chance to see them live after all this pan- pandemic stuff has cleared up. Other musical pieces and sound effects are provided by Andy Cole as well. Our research, as we've said, comes from all the fine papers at newspapers.com and also from the Toronto Star and Toronto Globe and Mail. Don't forget to give a listen to the Let's Write a Song podcast hosted by Andy Cole. You can find us on Twitter at at Hockey50Years and on Facebook under 50 Years Ago in Hockey. And we have a WordPress site at Hockey50YearsAgo.com. We also have a 50 Years Ago in Hockey YouTube channel if you like to get your podcasts that way. Thanks again, everyone, for tuning in. We really enjoy bringing this to you each and every week. And on that note, we will see you next time.